Good morning, Rio. How's everyone doing? My name is Doug Souder. Again, it's my pleasure to be here. And on behalf of four kids, I want to say thank you uh, to this congregation and for all that you have done uh, to be a part of this. Some of you have opened up your homes. Some of you have supported financially. But we've been able to see uh, God work through the church. You see, 15 years ago, uh, we got together with a group of people and we said, what if... What if we could get churches kind of off the sidelines? What if we could kind of break down the barrier between the church and the state to know that the solution for uh, what we call the modern-day orphan in our community isn't the government. It's actually the church. It's actually the people in the church. Because the greatest resource we think in the church is not the checks that the church can write. It's the Christian family that resides within the church. That's where the blessing of God is. That's where the power of God is manifest in a child's life. And we've seen that over and over and over. So on behalf of four kids and on behalf of the 17,000 children who have seen in a very tangible way the love of Christ in our community, I want to say thank you uh, for being a great big part of that. So thank you, Tom. Thank you, Matt. Thank you guys for being that voice um, here in our community. And so uh, today we're going to be talking about Jesus and children. We're going to talk about what every child needs. And uh, we're going to be looking at a few places in the Bible. If, if you want to turn to three places, I'll give them to you now, and then we'll get there eventually. Uh, one is Ezekiel chapter 16. And if you've never been to Ezekiel, it's uh, one of the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Ezekiel. And also we're going to be looking at Ephesians 1 and Romans 8. So if you have any of those places you want to start in the Word, that's where we will begin. I have the chance to go to churches all over our community and share this message of what kids in our community need. And it's a great privilege and a great honor to kind of be that spokesperson because we see these kids when they come into safe place. We see these kids and the look in their eyes. And we want to communicate that to you so that we can be mobilized as a, as a body of Christ for action. And I was teaching uh, a few months back, and I was teaching a group of 20, 30-year-olds, uh, about five, 600 kids. Um, and there's a chance after the message to, to text in questions, kind of anonymous questions. So I taught about God's heart for the orphan. And I got a text question that I didn't expect on the screen behind me. And the text question said, what if I don't care about orphans? And I was like, wow. I didn't expect a question like that. I mean, no one in an audience would ever raise their hand and say that because then people would say, oh my goodness, look how hard nut guy. She doesn't even care about a vulnerable child. But if you could text it anonymously, I think of a lot of us might actually test, text a question like that because... We're all just going through life. We're all, we're all busy. We all have pressures of our own. We're all trying to figure out how to pay the bills and raise our own kids. We have enough all by ourselves to begin to think about a vulnerable child in our community or across the world. The fact is, if we're honest, a lot of us might really ask that question. And I wanted to give an answer to that question, and I said the best answer to that question is in the book of Ezekiel chapter 16, because in that story, we will see the story of us. Ezekiel chapter 16, here's how the Bible describes it. Your ancestry and your birth, they were in the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite, your mother was a Hittite. And on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in clothes. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day of your, you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your own blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. This sounds like 
One of the stories we see on the news, baby found in dumpster, a child abandoned behind building. You scratch your head and you say, how could someone do that to a child? And most of us, when we read this story or hear those, those stories on the news, we, we are so attuned to being the rescue hero. We're oriented to say, well, if someone left a vulnerable baby on my doorstep, I would take that baby in. I would wash that baby. I would, I would, even if I didn't keep the baby, I would at least provide enough for the baby to go to a family of their own because I want to be that rescue hero. Listen, all of us want to be that, but this story is not about us being the rescue hero. In this story, we're the baby. And maybe, maybe you've never thought about this before. That you were actually this vulnerable when God found you. You were actually this helpless. The baby, it describes kicking in his own blood, thrown over into a field, umbilical cord not even bothered to be cut, despised, rejected. No one cared enough about you in that condition to even rub off that birth fluid and now you're there just kind of helpless and God says, you know, when I found you, that's where you were. Again, for a lot of us, we, we've never actually seen ourselves that helpless before, but God says, when I, when I saw you that way, here's what I, here's what I did for you. And then he goes on, verse after verse. In verse 8, I covered you, and I made an oath with you. Verse 9, I bathed you and put ointments on you. Verse 10, I clothed you and put sandals on your feet. Verse 11, I adorned you. He said, I made you mine. I made you royalty. This is the story of us. We were the child. God was the rescue hero. Today we're going to talk a little bit about what every child needs. We're going to talk about God's care for us, and we're going to talk about adoption. Now I want to ask you a personal question. It may seem kind of an intrusive question on a Sunday morning, but how many of you guys have been adopted into a family? Raise your hand. Okay, I see two, three, four, five hands. Now I have another question for you. How many of you are children of God? Raise your hand. All right. So I'm confused. You see, the Bible says that Jesus was his only begotten son, correct? So if Jesus was his only begotten son, then, then if you're not, you're not from or born of a father, then how do you become a child of someone with that, not a natural connection? There's only one way, right? It's, it's through adoption. So, so let me ask you this question again. How many of you guys have been adopted into a family? Yeah, because it's true. The people kind of often misuse this phrase. They say, you know, well, we're all God's children, right? You know, you're not going to find that anywhere in the pages of Scripture. That's kind of one of those things that people say because they don't understand how the Bible talks about how we start a relationship with God. We are not all God's children. We are all God's creation, and we're all related through Adam and Eve, but to become a child of God, well, there's only one way it happens. The book of John, chapter 1, John describes it this way. To as many as received him, to as many as believed in him, he gave them the right to be called the sons, the daughters of God. Not by a natural decision, not by the will of a husband, but by the will of God. This is the great plan of God. This idea that he adopts us into his family. And I want to share with you that in, in my work, I get to see 
this whole adoption process work its way out and play its way out on a regular basis in the courtroom just a few blocks from this place. Seeing a judge, seeing a child become officially a part of a family. And Ephesians chapter 1 describes this process in a very theological way for what God did for us. Ephesians chapter 1, this may shock you or surprise you, but adoption for God is not plan B. What do I mean by that? I mean, if you look through Ephesians chapter 1, you'll see a very, very clear that there was this idea that God was going to create the world. And that he knew that there would be a fall, that people would sin. And that he would also redeem them. But there's this one part of this adoption idea that we don't often think about. And that is that God could have saved you without making you a part of his family. He created you. You sinned. He provided the cross in a way of redemption. But then, just to make it amazing, he said, Jesus said, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if we actually made them part of our own family? And that's what Ephesians 1 describes. And it's almost like Paul is in awe as he writes this idea of adoption. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, Paul loves run-on sentences, and there's a lot of commas here, so we're going to kind of break this down for a second. Look, Look at what he says. He chose you. The bottom line is that if you're a child of God, God picked you. He chose you. Why did he do that? Because he had to? Or because... As Paul says here, because it was his pleasure and his will. God chose you before the foundation of the world, before Adam and Eve ever ate the fruit. God picked you. And Paul scratches his head and he says, this is to the praise of his glorious grace. This is a grace that's beyond just the grace of salvation. This is the grace that should blow your mind. You were the baby by the side of the road that no one wanted, that was despised and rejected. And God said, not only will I save you, not only will I rescue you, but I will make you my son. I will make you my daughter because it's my pleasure to do that. It's my will to do that. You see, my wife and I, we've adopted two of our three sons. And people often say to us, they say, You know, your sons, they're so lucky. Your sons, they're so blessed. They're so fortunate because they get to be a part of your family. And if they weren't part of your family, imagine the life they would have to which I say, no, no, I don't think you understand. I don't think you understand the pleasure that they bring us. And when I say that out loud, I hear God whisper, you know, Doug, I think the same thing about you. And that's a hard thought to grasp. But this is what God did for us in adoption. Now, I want to show you a bit about the adoption process because the adoption process is a legal process. And I'm going to read to you what a a, a judge in the Broward County Courthouse reads on a regular basis, just a few blocks from here, when a child's adopted. Because adoption has a few parts of a process. The first thing is adoption has a cost. You see, anytime you go to get an adoption, you've got to pay an attorney or pay an agency. Adoption also, um, there's a name change that happens. 
uh, your legal name changes, you actually get a new birth certificate. And part of an adoption that you might not be aware of is you have the right of inheritance. That as soon as this adoption certificate is finalized, you become an heir. And when you look at that list, you think, you know, what happens in a Broward County courthouse on a regular basis is really an echo of the grace of God for us, right? Because when you were adopted by God, was there a price for that adoption? Yeah, the Bible says it was the precious blood of Jesus by which you were adopted. Is there a name change? Yeah, yeah, you go from slave to son. Your name is written in that legal document, the Lamb's Book of Life. I mean, it's a part of this process. And do you have a right of inheritance? Yeah, you certainly do. Your inheritance now is the riches and glory of heaven. And I want to read to you what a judge said to me um, about eight years ago when we adopted my son Kennedy. He said this, The court finds that it is in the best interest of the minor child, Kennedy Joseph, that adoption be granted. From this day forward, your legal name will be Kennedy Joseph Joel Souter, and you will be the son of Doug and Suzanne Souter, as if you were their naturally born child. Dad and Mom, you and Kennedy now have the legal relationship of parent and child with all the rights and duties of this relationship, including the right of inheritance. This is an echo of grace. When I go to these adoptions, I get emotional. Because when I see this child become part of this family, no, now this child belongs somewhere. This child's life will be radically different. I think about what God did for me. I think about what God did for us. And Paul says, this is to the praise of his glorious grace. Or in other words, this blows my mind. Now again, we spend so much time talking about ideas like, well, this whole idea of of predestined and the doctrine of did we choose, did God choose, and we spend a lot of time, but we spend very little time talking about the doctrine of adoption. Because this should bring us so much mystery and so much awe and so much gratitude that we kind of just go, wow, can't believe God did this for us. And so I want to show you a picture of my family. Uh, We've got one of every color. Um, we've got Mocha over my left, that's Jackson, he's 14. Caden to my right, I call him Vanilla, he's 12. And Kennedy's Chocolate over my wife's uh, left shoulder. This is our family. So when we go out, we're kind of like the walking billboard for adoption, right? And so I typically get a question like this. Kind of one of those awkward social questions, sometimes in front of my own kids. So how many of them are yours? <laughs> to which I respond, all of them. You should see our grocery bill. And then there's kind of that, like, <laughs> that's kind of funny. But no, seriously, how many of them are your own? Now, when someone asks that question, how many of them are your own? What are they saying? Oh, they're saying, well, certainly the relationship can't be as close if it's not blood. You see, if it's a natural birth, the connection is greater. It could never be the same. And if you're a Christian and you think that, then you are in big trouble. Because what you're saying, essentially, is that Jesus is God's Son and everyone else, all the rest of us, we're kind of on a different level, in a different place. It's not that way. I see all my sons the same. I love them all the same. And as a dad, who's very proud of my kids, I'm going to brag on them for a second to prove a point to you. So I'm going to show you my my oldest son, Jackson. This is us in, in the white sands desert of New Mexico. And we are jumping off sand dunes. It looks like snow. It's really sand. This is my son, Jackson. He's 14. He is my right brain, hilarious kid. 
And, uh, you know, he was talking to me the other day and he was saying, Dad, I'm, I'm in middle school and, um, I wanted to, to try this pickup line on a girl. And I'm like, what? I'm like, all right, give it to me, give it to me. So he said, okay, I'm going to walk up to her and I'm going to look at her and I'm going to say, if you were a booger, I would pick you first. (laughs) And I said, perfect. You will never get a date. This is great. (laughs) Right? That's my son, Jackson. He makes me laugh. I mean, we don't need TV in our house. We just sit around the dinner table and listen to our kids talk. Then there's Caden. He's my middle son. He's the planner. He's kind of the methodical one. If any of my his two brothers ever make it big, he's going to be their agent. He's already got the percentage figured out. And he's also a great servant. He was in New Jersey just this last week to help hurricane victims. And it was kind of this conversation of, Dad, I feel God, at 12 years old, I feel God calling me to go help. Okay, son, well, if I pay for this ticket, you're going to have to pay for all your food and part of the ticket yourself out of your Christmas money. Are you willing to do that? Big test. Oh, Dad, if it's your money, I'll do anything for God. But if it's my money, you know what, Dad? Yeah, because it's more important to help other people than just to get things for myself. And he went, and I've got a picture of him at 80 pounds, carrying 80-pound sandbags to help um, people in relief. And it brought me great joy. And then finally, my youngest son, Kennedy, um, he is the youngest child, so he loves to wrestle, and he loves stories, and he loves all those things. And I, I, we have this kind of nighttime tradition where every time I tuck him in, we wrestle. And he says, you're not strong. And I say, yes, I am. I'm stronger than you. And I pin him down, and I kind of blow kiss to the neck, and he, he laughs, and it's this whole thing. And the other night, I, I pin him down, and he said, you're not strong. And I said, yes, I am. And he goes, you got me tonight, Dad, but the wrinkles are coming. <laughs> and I'm like... I can't even win with this kid because he's always got another line. And then there's me, and this was not photoshopped. I got big air, and my wife kind of looks on as she walks along, and that's kind of our family going, what did I get myself into? Because that was a 7,500-mile road trip in 20 days with three boys. It was the adventure of a lifetime. Now, why do I share this story? You're like, man, Doug, this is all about your family. Here's why. I'm a sinner. I'm a very imperfect father. And if I'm an imperfect father, imagine how much more God loves you. Jesus said this about kids. Jesus said this about fathers. He said, if you're a sinful father and you know how to give your kids good gifts, how much more does your father know how to give you what you ask for? How much more does your father love you? You see, one of my favorite things to do is to watch my kids sleep at night. Any parents of kids that age want to give me a testimony? They're asleep. All that energy, all that passion, still. And I walk into their room and I see that potential. I, I see the gift that they are to me. And sometimes I get emotional and just put my hand on their head and just pray for them and thank God for my kids. And then when I do that, usually at night when it's quiet, I hear this whisper. Doug, I love to watch you sleep too. That's my father. Do you think God walks in your room at night and looks at you and says, I love to watch my son Tom sleep. I love to see my my son Matt sleep. I love, I love to watch them sleep. That's my son. That's my dog. I'm so proud of them. 
You see, it's, it's hard for us to wrap our brain around this idea that God would, would stoop that way, that he would love that way. We can get the big picture, that he died for the sins of, of people that, that needed redemption. That was, that was all of us. He, he did all these things. But for him to be in our room looking at us, that sense of connection, that sense of, of fatherhood. And for some of us, that's kind of hard because we didn't really have great dads. You see, whether you know it or not, or like it or not, or believe it or not, your view of God is is linked to the experience you had with your own father. I, I mean, I remember this conversation when we, we were in college. I was with a couple of friends, and we were describing our dads, right? And, I, and, and one of my friends said, you know, um, uh, we were, I'm sorry, we're describing God. And, and, and one of my friends said, God's a God of justice and holiness. He doesn't tolerate sin. He punishes it. And one of my other friends was saying, you know, but God's a God of grace and mercy, and his, his mercy is new every morning. And I was kind of like, yeah, you reap what you sow, and, and if you do what's right, God blesses you, and if you don't, there's punishment and discipline. And then we, it kind of struck all of us at the same time that we were all describing our dads. You see, your view of God as father is linked to your experience with your father, and I want to say this to you. God is not like your earthly father. He's other. He, he's above. He, he's perfect. He's holy. And, and, and he wants to remind you of that today. Because as we talk about children and Jesus' love for children, we have to first see ourselves as a child. And if we can see ourselves as a child to know what we need, then we can so much more pour out that love on our own kids. And so now I want you to turn to Romans 8, because there's something that God does to remind us of this on a regular basis. You see, if you would have kept on reading Ephesians, you would have seen that God puts his Holy Spirit in us as a deposit, guaranteeing what's to come. He puts his Holy Spirit in us to remind us who we are. And Romans 8 describes this process. And if you read this chapter this week, I want to park on verses 14 through 17, because when we think about what is the chief work of the Holy Spirit, how does the Holy Spirit work inside of us? Very rarely do people put this in that top category. We might say that the Spirit of God gives us power. The Spirit of God brings our, our gifts to light. The, the Spirit of God gives us insight and wisdom. But the Bible in Romans 8 describes another work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds. Here's what the Bible says in Romans 8, 14. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share his sufferings, in order that we also may share in his glory. You see, there's this constant barrage for us to actually see ourselves as the sons of God because the world's not going to tell us that and even our own minds won't tell us that. But Paul says that God placed his spirit in us simply to remind us who we are and who we belong to. Who do we belong to? I want you to look at this idea of who we belong to. You'll see it on the screen. Who do we belong to? This gives us that sense of security. If you know who you belong to, then you also know you're safe. If you know who you belong to, you're you're anchored somewhere. But if you don't know where you belong, you're in big trouble. And, And this voice in your head, 
According to verse 16, listen to this. It says that the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. That means on your worst day as a Christian, the day you beat yourself up from the stupid thing that you did, your worst day as a Christian where Satan whispers in your ear, that wasn't real. This doesn't mean anything. It's all fake that the Spirit of God in you says, Doug, you're my son. And nothing's going to change that. Doug, you're my son, and I love you desperately. Doug, you're my son, and I love to watch you when you go to sleep. And that, the Bible says, can be that anchor for your soul. You see, what we all need as children, what we all need as adults, mature people, is to know that we belong someplace. I I belong to God. I I belong to my mother and my father. I belong to my wife, Suzanne. I belong to my kids. All those things give me a sense of of anchor, give me a sense of knowing where, where I belong and who I am. But if you don't have that, and if you have a past of rejection, if you have a past of broken relationships, then you begin to wonder, if I don't belong any place, then anything could happen, and this thing is so unstable. And Paul says that my spirit whispers, you belong to me. You belong to me. No matter what you think or feel, no matter what you've done, you belong to me. So in his word, by his spirit, he gives you this reminder. Now, I want to show you a video It's of a girl I'm going to call Rachel. It's a girl who's been in and out of foster care her whole life. And and she's gone into families and been rejected and gone into families and been rejected. She's kind of used to people say, I'll be there for you. I love you. We'll always be together. And then cut, move on, cut, move on, cut, move on, because her behavior kind of made it very difficult for a family to work. And now she's sitting down with her foster family, and they're about to have a conversation with her, and she knows what's coming. She just knows that her behavior... And her actions are going to separate her once again from a place of belonging. And I want you to hear kind of the surprise her foster parents have for her. But here's what I want you to watch in the video. I want you to watch her facial expressions. Because her facial expressions are wrestling with an idea. An idea that she has never comprehended in her heart or her mind. Take take a look at the video. You see, she just knew. She just knew that those parents were going to say, you're great, you're so good at this, you're so good at that, we love you, but it's just not going to work out. See, she heard that over and over and over in her whole life. And, and all she wanted, and I've heard this so many times from kids who are orphans, they're, they're just out there, they, they say this, I just want to belong someplace. I just want to belong someplace. That, that's all I want. And you know that cry of the heart? That's in us. As secure as we think we are, as mature as we think we are, as kind of on our own and independent as we think we are, we're just like Rachel. We just want to belong someplace. And you see, when God adopts you, he doesn't always adopt this precious little baby with no problems. See, God adopted me when I was 18 years old. I came to him with all sorts of issues. Right? First Corinthians uh, verse 6 talks about when, when we came to God, we were, we were adulterers, we were liars, we, we had all these issues, we were covetous, we were idolaters, we had all these issues. And then it says, but that's what you were, and then I washed you. And then I redeemed you, then I sanctified you. And that's what happens in the process of adoption. 
You see, sometimes when we think about the whole adoption, you see the picture of my family, you think, oh, isn't that great? These, these poor kids that went through all these things came into this family, now everything's great, but it's not always like that. You see, when we adopted our son Kennedy at two years old, he had all sorts of problems because when you're a little baby and you cry, no one picks you up. When you're sick and no one takes you to the hospital, you can create this kind of attachment. So there was... Severe asthma, they thought cystic fibrosis. There were severe behavior problems. He used to bang his head at night. He used to rage at two years old and tear all the things off his wall. He could pull the mattress off his bed. He could destroy a room because of the rage he had because when he was young and cried and no one came, he learned he didn't need anyone. He could do it all by himself. And with all these issues and all these challenges, my wife and I had to take one step at a time through that process of redemption. And that process was hard because I had never seen a two-year-old that was depressed before. Kind of scratched my head and thought, I've never seen a child so sad, so what do we do? So what I did was I started to tell stories at night. And for eight years, I've told stories to my son Kennedy that all start like this. Once upon a time, there was a little boy named Kennedy, Joseph Joel Souter. And he had a mom and a dad, and a brother named Jackson, and a brother named Caden, dot, dot, dot. Every story started the same way, and he used to start the story with me. Dad, Dad, tell me a story. Once upon a time, and he would say the same thing over and over and over. Why? Why is that so important? Because he needed to know who he belonged to, and he also needed to know who he was. And that answers the second question. What, do, what does every child need? Every child needs to know, who am I? It's the question of identity. And so in those stories, I would tell him he was brave. I would tell him he was smart. In those stories, I would tell him he was the most amazing detective, warrior, friend. And you know what? He started to become that person that I told him he was. That was that self-fulfilling prophecy. You see, for a long time, he didn't like who he was. He didn't like anything about it. I remember him throwing stuff all over the floor when we give him his food, and Jackson looked at me and said, I don't think he likes our family. I'm like, give him time, give him time. And I knew a few years later, about five or six years old, I said to him one night, I said, Kennedy, if you could be whoever you wanted to be in the whole world, who would it be? And he said, I'd want to be me. And that's when I knew that that message was getting through here and here. You know, that same message is coming from God to you. Again, it's easy for us to think, this is what children need. But remember who we are? We're children of God. We need the same thing that Kennedy needed. We need the same thing that every child needs. We need to know who we are. Who we are. Because if you know who you belong to and you're anchored in that security, then you can walk out an identity. I am a child of God, even if I don't feel like it. I am God's chosen one. And when he watches me sleep, he's so proud of me. And with that foundation, I could become so many things. This is the reason why the three times that God spoke from heaven to his son Jesus, he said, this is my son. My, who you belong to. Son, this is identity. And him, I am well pleased. I'm so proud of him. This is my son. Listen to him. This is the simple instruction the father gave to the son on earth three times. So Jesus would be reminded of what was already true. 
You see, today is not this new doctrine, this new idea. It's a very simple reminder of what you know is true. And I want to then share with you the third thing that every child needs, and that's this. It's who accepts me? Who likes me? And notice I didn't say the word love because, you know, sometimes you can say, you know what, I love you because I have to because God made me, but I don't really like you, right? But a child needs to see in your actions, in your words, in your life, this person genuinely likes me. And it starts with words. It starts with words. If you have a teenage daughter, you know what you need to say to her? You need to say, you know, I don't think we're ever going to find a guy good enough for you. You need to say things like that. You need to look at your son and say, you are amazing. Not when he scores a goal. Not when he gets an A. Just because you think he's amazing. These are words. It's a blessing that you give your kids. This is what kids desperately need. They thrive on these words of acceptance. It's something simple when your son is doing dishes one day after dinner and you say, you know what, son? You're going to make a great husband one day. It's when your daughter's talking on the phone with someone and she's giving them wise counsel and she shares a verse of scripture or praising them. You can say, you are going to be an amazing counselor one day. And you speak words of life into their future and they start to grow in that direction. But it's not just words. You see, one of the ways you show acceptance even more than when you talk is when you listen. Because 93% of communication is nonverbal. It's everything else except your words. And so maybe here's an important question. When your children talk, do you listen to them? Not like this. Uh Uh-huh. 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 No, no. No. Are you focused on them? Unbroken eye contact, attention. Because that attention says something. Jesus said this, be very careful or consider carefully how you listen. Luke 8.18, consider carefully how you listen. Jesus was this very approachable person because no matter who you were, no matter you were rich or poor, on the in crowd or the out crowd or young or old or any, he, he would give people that type of attention, that type of love, just by the way he interacted and listened to them. He was the one that said, let the children come and, and jump on me and, and play with me because they knew when he looked at them that, that he loved them. That acceptance was there. But it's not just the way you speak that shows acceptance. It's not just the way you listen. It's also this thing called touch. You see, children, especially the kids that I work with, are thriving for touch. But I know this. I've talked to so many kids in Christian homes that that are thriving for the same touch. Here's what we know about touch. You see, a father's touch diminishes by age. As a child gets older and older and older, a child is touched less and less and less by his father. Maybe that kind of awkward thing. I remember my dad used to tuck me into bed and hug and kiss me every night till about middle school. And then it was kind of like, good night, son, from the door. And I wonder if that was kind of like that awkward thing of like, you know, adolescence and everything, but it was just kind of one of those things I remember. And if your kids need touch, they need it in middle school and high school, maybe even more when they're young. And so there's that, that thing. Jesus touched, he touched lepers. He did not have to touch someone to heal them, but part of the touch for Jesus was, I want you to know you're human. And just by me doing this, I want you to know that. I want you to, I used to work with kids in the school, in the school system, and, and the most motivating, reinforcing thing I could do for them was to wrestle with them. And they didn't want to wrestle with each other. They wanted to wrestle with me because they didn't have a dad. And they just wanted to know what it felt like to be touched. So I want to say, if you're a dad in this room, 
You need to find a way to, to touch your kids, to show them acceptance and love. It could be messing their hair up. It could be kicking them in the butt. That's what I do with my kids. It's my way to say we are connected no matter what. That is one of the ways you show acceptance. But another way, and maybe the most important way of all that you show acceptance, is the way you look at your kids. Now you may scratch your head and you say, what? You see, your look, your gaze, the way you make eye contact, the way you affirm your kids through your eyes, is the most powerful form of acceptance. Because it's the only sense that you can't fake. I'm going to say that again. The way you look at someone is the only sense that you cannot fake. Your kids know when you're looking at them, when you're focused. They know when you care. They know when you're angry. They've studied you. They know all about this. And kids are so intuitive to the look of adults. And this has become a whole science. There's a guy named Paul Ekman that broke down the taxonomy of facial expressions. There are 3,000 combinations of facial expressions you can make, and he created a taxonomy of what those things were. And he can take a videotape of someone talking and without hearing a word they say, tell about what that person thinks and feels about the other individual they're talking to. And it's amazing that your face will not lie. And I want you to think about Jesus. Why do you think that children were attracted to Jesus? Because talking to important people, and now there's a child, and he's like, hey, come on. And there's this face that says, you right now are the most important. You're an amazing young man. And you're an amazing young woman. And now the talking and everything, it's not fake. It's not contrived. It's very, very real. I want you to think about this facial expression. I've often wondered about this. Peter denies three times that he even knows Jesus. And the Bible says that the cock crowed and Jesus looked at Peter. You ever wonder what that look was? The first time I read it, I thought the look was something like this. And then the more I... I read the more I, I looked at the redemption, the way Jesus brought Peter back. It was probably like a, I love you, Peter. You're going to make it. This is all going to be different in just a few days. You see that, that look. That, that means something. Our kids need to know that they're accepted in our own homes. They need to know that they're loved, not just by our words, but by the way we show that through our senses. Now I want to close with this kind of action point because Paul said this idea of adoption, this idea of being accepted by God and loved by God and belonging to God that helps us to know who we are, that that should bring us to a great sense of awe. In, in, in Ephesians chapter 3 it says, I have to kneel before God as I just think about the fact that God adopted me, that I belong to him, that he made me a child and that he accepts and loves me so passionately. So now what do I do with that? Well, I want to kind of end with this action point because I want to show you a number. This is the number of orphans in our world. Side by side, they would circle our planet four times. These are children who don't belong to anybody. These are children who don't know who they are. These are children who don't feel that love and acceptance from people. And when you see that number... Immediately, at least for me, my, my brain shuts down. It's so overwhelming. You go, 
I don't know if there's anything I can do about that number, but I want to show you another number because this is the number that God wants to put in your heart and mind today because he doesn't want you to save 143 million children. He wants you to help just one. I want to show you a picture of an orphan. This is a picture my wife and I snapped on the streets of Ethiopia a few years back. This is a beggar on the streets. I want you to look into his eyes. Tell me what you see. For me, I see a child who doesn't know where his next meal is going to come from. He doesn't know if he's going to be safe at night. He doesn't really even know why he's alive because he's disconnected from anyone who cares. You see that same look I see on the face of an American orphan. I want to show you another picture. This is a picture of Dorothy. She's an American orphan. She found an adoptive home, but before that, she had the same look on her face. I want to show you another picture. This is Samaya. This is an American orphan. You know, they start out as orphans of the living because their parents can't take care of them because of, of drug abuse or domestic violence, but they, they end up at a place where they're nowhere. Their parents are the state of Florida. And they cry out, I, I, want, I want to belong somewhere. I, I, I want to know who I am. Someone please give me that anchor to know that I'm accepted and loved so I can become the person that God wants me to be. I want to read for you what it may be like for an American orphan. Imagine for a moment the plight of an orphan somewhere out there. With every passing year, she will become less cute, thus less adoptable. In a few years, on her 18th birthday, she'll be expelled from the system. She might join the military or find a job training program. Maybe she'll stare at a tile on the ceiling above her as her body is violated, alone, or before a camera crew of strangers, selling herself to a man who's willing to pay enough for her to eat for one more day. Maybe she'll place a revolver in her mouth or tie a rope around her neck, knowing that no one will notice except the ones who have to clean up her blood afterward. This could just as well describe a boy who's orphaned. Can you feel the desperation of what it means to be an orphan all alone? Jesus can. He hears their cry. What if I don't care about orphans? It's a question every single person has to wrestle with. And I want to say this very clearly. This is not a guilt trip so that you all adopt a child because not every Christian is called to adopt children, but every Christian is called to rescue orphans. Why? Because you were one. Jesus said, I won't leave you as orphans. I'm going to come for you. Jesus is that rescue hero. And if you know that he rescued you, then part of the gratitude of your heart is, if I was that baby, if I was so helpless, then for whatever Jesus did for me, then I want to help do for someone else. And then you find your way to say, I'm going to do my one thing. And I want to say that the body of Christ has been doing that and is continuing to do that for the next few children who come into safe place today because today, three or four more children will be taken by a police car into safe place at the corner of Broward and 441 and they'll be asking questions. How did I get here? What's happening? What happens next? Will I ever belong anywhere? Will anyone ever accept me? Who will I become? I don't know the answer to any of these questions. And when I read Psalm 68, verse 5, 
I feel a great sense of comfort because Psalm 68.5 says that God is a father to the fatherless. When I used to read that, it used to bring me this great sense of peace, like, okay, good, God's got that. I can go do my thing. Until I read verse 6, the next verse says, yes, and God places the lonely in a family. What does every child need? Every child needs a family because once you belong to a family, everything else happens for you the way it should. And we all belong to this body of Christ. And I want to show you a series of pictures because over the years we've seen family after family, Michael finding his mom and the pastor, Ryan Gibbon, finding his his family. And you see picture after picture of kids that have been on the outside that are now on the inside that didn't know who they were that are now loved and accepted all because someone in the body of Christ said, for whatever Jesus did for me, now I want to do for someone else because I belong to this great family of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great grace, the grace that rescued us when we were in our most desperate hour. When we were in our most vulnerable moment, you came and you helped us to know that we could belong to you. You gave us your spirit to remind us of who we were. And Lord, I pray today that every person in this room would walk away with a great sense of gratitude at your grace that made them a part of your family. Father, we pray for those whose hearts are burning inside of their chest that that know there's something they can do that you would, by your spirit, place them in the right conversation, in the right step to help rescue that next child who needs to know your love, Jesus. We thank you for that grace. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.